Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Start your countdown to the most delicious Sunday of the year at Whole Foods Market. The Easter in Bloom event is on. Experience it in stores from March 29th through April 11th with irresistible deals and delights store-wide. Save on feast-worthy animal welfare certified meats like spiral-cut ham and boneless ribeye. Then add a flash of green to the scene with savings on organic asparagus. Too busy to cook? Don't sleep on their crowd-favorite catering. Find all of that plus source for good floral bouquets and more at your local Whole Foods Market. Laura Redman is a lot of things, but the two most important for me is she's, uh, she's sober, so she ends up on this podcast, and she is a force of nature. During a point in this podcast, I literally asked her how much I was going to owe her after this hour because it was like therapy for me, and I hope it will be a real safe place for you to just hear about her recovery. She was a life coach, or excuse me, a fitness coach to the stars. We're talking about Tom Cruise. We're talking about Mary Tyler Moore. We're talking about Madonna. Uh, she was huge in the 80s as far as the fitness revolution was concerned, and she is huge now as far as helping people as a coach, whether you want to call it a life coach or a confidence coach. She's the real deal. Uh, she has a book, Feel Good Naked, that she wrote a while ago, and I'm honored to write another one. Uh, of course, her website, lauraredman.com. We're going to link it to the pod. And uh, this is fantastic. I'm really stoked. Uh, that she took the time t to hang out with me for an hour because it, I, I just got done and I feel real good. Only one way to feel better, right? Kevin Souza. Coke Zero, by the way. You there? There we go. There, there we, we go. go. Hi. Hey, I, I, wow, you sound great. You sound great, too. <laughs> Are, so my audio is coming through? Yeah, it's coming through really well. Yeah. Uh, nice. I'm, I'm in a studio right now in Central Texas, and our producer is Aaron and, and Allison, too. We have, we have two people today. I mean, that's how, that's how big of a podcast this is. That's pretty nice that's wonderful to have backup i love it yeah I, I could use some backup today but you're stuck with me solo uh are, are you in portland i'm in portland oregon yeah i love it out here and i've been here for over 20 years now what about you with texas i've been in texas for four years i live in austin now i'm working out of waco uh and uh it's awesome i i, I never thought i'm from philadelphia i never thought that i would um love it as much as i do but i like texas it's all right did you go from Philly to Texas? I was, I've been all over. I've been, I grew up in Philly. I went to school in Virginia, lived in the Northeast and some cities there, and then got, found my way to, <laughs> I guess, fell into rehab and then kind of got restarted and oh, have, yeah. have been moving and grooving ever since. Yay. That's so awesome. You've been sober for, I guess, around, we have a mutual friend in Jill and- yeah. You've been sober around four years, she tells me? 2017, August so, 22nd. 
Okay, August 22nd, 2017, but you were, for the better portion of your life, you were uplifting people, physically, emotionally, yeah. and mentally. Yes, yes, and that was probably the greatest shame piece for me, was being conscious of what my work was and then what my private life included with alcohol. Um, so there was a really powerful connection that I made once I stopped drinking around the fact that shame is part of life and if you can learn to live and understand shame, you have a doorway out. And so it was a very strong connection for me to recognize the struggle I was in with no one's awareness at all that that was my intact struggle. Before I, I hit it. I hit it well. Yeah, you have, obviously, because you had a lot of success. Before I get into you and your backstory, when you say understanding shame, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that shame is when you feel bad about who you are. And my alcoholism was hidden because I was terrified to face what other people would think of me in that paradigm of alcoholism. It gave me great pain to imagine people seeing me as an alcoholic because it would make me less likable. Um, the shame was my own hatred towards self around imagining how others would perceive me. So it's, it's a big topic, shame, and I think it has many layers, but I'm most comfortable now talking about all those layers. And honestly, I think it's mostly about feeling bad about who you are and then imagining if others saw you the same way. And how do you take that and flip it and almost make it empowering? Because we're all humans doing this human incarnation and shame is part of that. And I've learned to welcome all of the feelings, all of the emotions. And shame gets to have a seat at my table when she needs my love. And when I give love to a shameful feeling or thought, it immediately gives me self-compassion. And then I'm in a better situation to help others as well as myself. So it's turning it from a hatred paradigm to a loving paradigm. And that's been one of the greatest, most liberating, freeing aspects of my healing. Yeah, it's just taking it easy on yourself and then learning yeah. through your, your journey how to understanding those emotions for me has been huge. And I forget, you know, that's why I got to practice it daily uh, because I will, you know, I've heard people say if I had a friend that talked to me the way I've been talking to myself, they wouldn't be my friend. And sometimes yeah. I get going on the shame and it's like, wait, what are we doing here? And then if you just, if I can employ what you just said, and show love to myself, right? Like I'm supposed to to somebody else, uh, the freedom starts. And, and I want to go back to something I just heard you say about, oh, whoa, why am I in this moment? What my language would be would be more like, oh, come here, precious, sweet shame. What is it that's happening? What, what are you feeling right now? Tell me more. What's going on? Are you in present time or are you having a memory or are you projecting? Like I sit with language that is supportive and loving because even I find with my high sensitivity, even if I say, wait, why are you here? 
that already sets me up to feel embarrassed or guilty about it. But if I say, come here, come here, sweetie, and I'll put both my hands on my heart, which is a physical, somatic way to hold myself just lovingly in this experience of the feeling, that has served me so beautifully because the language we speak to ourselves is usually, often, the most critical, mean, non-supportive language. So I will catch myself on the smallest little ways of not being supportive to self, but being critical, judgmental, or unkind. And that means every word matters. Wow, Laura, I, how much am I going to owe you after this? This is pretty good. Our, <laughs> this, is really, this is really good stuff. <laughs> I want to start back with you. When did you, because I want to get into your, your journey and your sobriety. When did you have your first drink, or when do you remember alcohol really having a, a, a positive effect? But that's what happened with me, right? When did you feel like, oh, gosh, where has this been? Yeah. Oh, great question. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and if you've ever been there, you understand that it's a very, very big drinking culture. Yeah. Um, the party is 24-7, and it's not about when you drink, it's that you drink all the time. It's, it's, uh, it, it, there's a joke in New Orleans that there's alcohol in a baby bottle um, because it calms the baby down, like Dramamine. So I grew up in a culture that was just alcohol was part of living every day. And I was surrounded by it without any idea that it was odd or different or something that actually was not a great substance or a behavioral alteration. And so my first time I could feel the effects of ethanol in my body would have been around the age of 12. And what I remember was it gave me such relief. I felt like I could just exist with no worries, no stress, no problems. Um, I, was, I can see myself sitting in this bar in the French Quarter with my older sister and her boyfriend, and they had kind of snuck me in because in New Orleans it's really easy to get into any bar, no matter your age. And um, they gave me a sip of the frozen daiquiri. And I think that was one of those moments where I left my brain and body and it was so elating. It just felt like the first time I probably had felt relief in my life and I loved it. What was your home life like? Uh, your family, uh, you know, mm. you, you mentioned for the first time feeling relief. So what was it like at home? Lots of trauma. Um, my beloved mother was married to my father and they were young, and they were big drinkers. And he left our home when I was eight, and she started to get really ill when I was 12, and she died when I was just 16. And so I was sort of one of these children that didn't have any direction emotionally, no, no base for those feelings that we just mentioned that aren't so pleasant. Um, everything was a party. Everything was a celebration. There was no place to land if you were struggling or having issues. And I grew up with two older sisters. And my understanding now of who I am is a highly sensitive child, a highly sensitive adult. Highly sensitive people really need 
the support to go through emotions, and I had none of that. So between my father leaving and my mother getting ill for five years before dying, um, it was a very traumatic time, um, and I had an abusive stepfather who my mother married, and I was the only one that he abused, and it was mentally abusive. It was not physical abuse, but it was deep mental abuse in my developmental years. So I was surrounded by trauma, and alcohol was the only place I knew that I could just escape that trauma for however long the effect lasted in my brain. Um, so that would be why I know now the childhood just promoted this whole alcoholism that developed very slowly. I've seen some of your work before, um, you know, as you were, as you were coming up and just, and recently, you know, on, on TV in Portland and you've got a magnetic persona. When you were a kid, were people looking at you, would they say, Hey, Lars, Lars, a lot of fun. She's, she's uh, you know, happy or would they, or, or, or did you come off as somebody who was, who, who was dealing with trauma? Mm, such a good question, Pete. You know, I was the, I knew how to make all the adults happy. And so you could call it the ultimate codependency. So if I was a performatory, uh, extroverted, joyful human, everybody was pleased. So I really knew that that was one of my superpowers was to be there for others in a way that was joyful and happy and dynamic, but truly I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert extrovert. So I knew how to make other people happy. And that was how I became so aware in the sensitivity I described with what to do to make the situation better. And I know it was a really a, a doorway into being of service to others in, in a much more meaningful way. But it was also a departure from my needs to make another person happy and to be the, the, the positive, the optimist, the entertainer, the performer. And so I started young, and I loved what it did to people when I was that personality of joy and optimism. But I was denying all that introverted complexity that was in the emotional realm. What kind of person did you identify? What kind of person were you as far as like being a young adult? Were you, were you into acting? Were you into sports? Uh, obviously, you were into fitness. But how did you identify? Well, the, fitness, the fitness came from watching my mother lose her ability to walk. She, at the end of her life, she was paralyzed by the radiation that they used for her cancer. And I was a very chubby child. I was a child that was always told she was ugly up against my female counterparts that were very classically beautiful. Um, I had more of the Irish genes with the freckles, the red hair, the chubby body. And once my mother's legs didn't work, I realized I had two legs that did work. And that meant that I needed to use them. So I just very slowly started to jog, and this would have been 1978 when jogging was very new in the culture. Yeah. And I was in a boarding school with a roommate that jogged. So what happened when I started jogging, even though it was a quarter of a mile at most, was I noticed my brain felt better. It was the dopamine effect, but I didn't understand it really. I just knew, oh, 
I actually feel much more up <laughs> than I felt when I started. And then I just became really pulled to this idea of running. So I became a, you know, a runner with this feeling of my body changing, my brain chemistry changing. And then when I arrived at Chapel Hill, where I went to school, I was, I, I came upon an exercise studio. This was again, 1980. So this was not something that we saw much of in the culture yet. It was the Jane Fonda just starting kind of movement. Yeah. And I put myself in a class. Lawrence Taylor was to my right. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I really like this. There's music and I'm a dancer. And I, and I felt my dance come through in that very moment. And it just was like, oh, this is my fit. And I just started doing this class at the studio off campus. And the owner finally said, I want you to work here. You are so incredible. I can't believe it. So I, I started working in fitness while getting my degree and then created an entire career out of it in New York City. A couple of things on what you just said. One, I don't know if it's the attic gene. I was exactly, I experienced the same exact thing you did at, at a, maybe a couple years older. I was a football player who couldn't play football because of health stuff. And I was kind of, I was big. Um, and my brother, Michael had gone to California. He had the same build and he'd lost weight just running and, and, and lifting. So the summer going into my senior year in college, I literally jogged a quarter mile around the block. Uh, and, and I felt, and I felt better. Like I was like, wow, I feel good. And that summer I got up to three, four miles a day and I was, I was addicted to how it made me feel. I liked the way it was making me look and I was off and I've been running ever since. And, and, and mixed in with lifting, uh, you know, people will probably say I could lift more than I run um, because I, I, I like running so much. I do it so often. Uh, but uh, same exact experience now. I, do you attribute that a little bit to the, to the addict gene? That, that, that I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't know if you call it endorphins or what, but that rush felt so good. I became hooked on it. Oh, I love knowing that about you and my sharing that. That's, that feels so helpful to hear because that dopamine is what it is. It's like when you move your body, you release, you get the dopamine that is, is what feels so good in the brain while the body, as you say, is, is really becoming much more um, embodied, which means just more aligned with the form it's meant to be. And by the so time, it's a win -win. yeah, it is a win-win. By the time I was a senior in college, I'd be, I, I was a pro at drinking and, and, and that running, oh could help me, would, would reset for me. It would, it would, yep. it would, it was almost as good as doing like speed, not quite, but like it would, it would reset my brain and I would be ready to go for the rest of the day and, yeah. and somehow feel clean. What was that? What was LT like? Oh, LT. My memory of LT to this day is doing a squat next to him, <clears throat> pardon me, and his thighs. So his thighs were big and he would wear these short class that were short and when you think of the quadricep it's quadricep because it's four parts but when this man went into a squat his four-part quadricep would quiver and shake and he would hold the squat like you know super intense and I would turn my head and go oh my god look at those legs <laughs> <laughs> and they were just shaking and he loved it. He was just like, give me more, give me more. And I was like, whoa, man, that's, that's a quadricep. So I remember his legs. 
What about, I had to ask you about Lawrence Taylor. What about you get to New York, this fitness? I mean, you, can I call you a fitness uh, coach to the stars? Yeah, totally. I was. Who, who did you work with? So people know. Oh, well, so, oh man, this was such a big era. This was a 10 year chapter. And again, this idea of an exercise studio was a brand new concept. It was before the super gem. And so anybody who had a high profile would go to a facility like the one that I ran in New York. Because the there just weren't, the there weren't, studio, that, there weren't that many, right? And you've got one that's no, kind of weren't. viewed as high profile, so people are coming. Yeah, the, the, the studio I worked, the owner was from L.A. Body Design by Gilda was the name of it, and people knew her through the L.A. world. So slowly coming through my door would be the top models and actors of the time, which included Tom Cruise, Andy McDowell, Mary Tyler Moore, who became a dear friend of mine, and we actually worked together. Yes, yeah, so you, you did a fitness video with her, right? I did, yeah. yeah. So um, we had so many high-profile people, and the biggest one for me was Madonna because wow. I had such a thing going on with her music at the same time she was in my studio. And Tom Cruise came because um, he was dating Rebecca De Mornay. It was mostly females, but she dragged them in when they were filming Risky Business. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know they had um, a thing. Yeah, they were co-stars. Wow. Yeah, and Helen Hunt. These, this is before a lot of these people really made it. Kira Sedgwick, um, Mary Stuart Masterson. And the craziest thing is the two women that worked for me that became super huge was Connie Britton. And Annabella Sciorra. So because I was hiring a lot of actors that needed work because they weren't getting jobs, a lot of these actors would say, let me learn how to teach some fitness. And I would bring them in and give them a part-time gig. So I just am so happy for Connie Britton seeing the work she's produced since that era. But we were a high-end celebrity hub. And they were safe there. So what's it like for you? outside of this now because your identity is you're this you know wellness coach or fitness coach to the stars and then where's the drinking at or or, or the drugs what's going on outside because you're in new york in the early to mid 80s right we're talking about that period right now the city is is bouncing back from all that crap with the bankruptcy and all that stuff or almost going bankrupt and now you're you're thriving what is that like and where are you in this in the mix of this whole thing well, see, I related to what you said about the running the day after to kind of, in your own mind, equate a balance with all the drinking the night before. And so my heavy drinking began at Chapel Hill with a lot of the lacrosse players who I hung out with. You know, there was this idea of, you know, drink or die. And so we would just drink until we were practically all dead because we were so loaded. But, but I'd get up the next day and go run. So by the time I got to New York, I was so immersed in my field of work that it wasn't like I drank a lot every night, but when I did drink, I would go so far away from moderation. You know, it would be like three to four margaritas with a shot of tequila. And my body was just a rock solid, like, you know, I I was like a racehorse. I could do it all. I could drink, I could work out, I could dance, I could run a business, um, and I was really not aware of the quantity that I could take that I could drink most men under the table. So I was able to tolerate high alcohol 
and perform beautifully the next day. I just, it, it never was slowing my life down at that point. Did you have any consequences when you were in New York? Anything that you were like, whoa? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Not that I could actually remember right now to, to note, but as I've gone through making amends, anytime I have felt like, oh boy, was that a result of my drinking? During that period, I will contact that person to check in about it because I really didn't take accountability at all during that time. And I don't remember feeling like there was any sort of a rock bottom warning. Um, but I, but I can see that it was slowly giving me this deep departure from my best self. Just I wasn't conscious of it then. You know, it's interesting. And I, I again, I quote myself, you're with, you're in New Orleans, which is like, and I'm guessing, would you, Irish Catholic? You know, I grew up in a um, Episcopalian okay. home. All right. I was, I guess the Irish Catholic, because I know there's a lot of, <laughs> being in New Orleans, uh, there's a church on, uh, a lot of Catholic churches. And, but the drinking culture of the city of New Orleans you grow up in, you get to UNC, you know, you're, you're running with, with athletes, drink or die, and then you're in New York. And I guess the culture, your, your world is fitness, but that's still a place where people are moving fast. High octane. Yes. High, you're, 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 High you're, 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 yes, exactly. And you're, you gravitate. Like up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what happens in New York with your business? It starts to take off. Uh, I mean, these are heavyweights you're talking about coming into your gym. How does it all evolve? Well, here's something interesting to share with you is that, so ESPN came to my studio in New York to audition for the Corey Everson. Uh, it was an ESPN show about weightlifting. And Corey Everson at this time was like Miss Universe. And they wanted someone to come on the show that could do like the aerobic portion of the last five minutes of this half hour. And I auditioned and I got the gig. So I went to Hawaii and I shot this show with Corey for a couple years. They put me on, I think, two seasons total. But I really became enamored with doing TV work. I loved it. And it felt like such a great way to reach many people at one time. So that when I came back into my studio world, I was really psyched to do a video with Mary Tyler Moore on women that are older who stay super fit. And she was a client at the time, and she loved the idea of this project. So I started to hang out with Mary on weekends, on evenings. And Mary had given up alcohol yeah. through her own struggle when she had hit her rock bottom. And all of a sudden, I'm with this mentor and mother figure who's telling me constantly about the miracle of alcohol recovery and AA and not drinking. And that's when a seed got planted. Yeah. Because I just thought, gosh, how could I ever be in the world and not drink? But Mary doesn't drink. And I would ask so many questions because I think right then my soul was realizing, girl, you shouldn't drink either. But it was Mary's discussions about not drinking and I'd watch her at these dinners and I would, you know, order my wine or my champagne or my beer and she would have her Perrier and I thought, how can you even do a social event without alcohol? It was implausible to me. But I'd see her doing it. I thought, well, Mary's doing it. Hmm. So the heavy hitter in my recovery would be Mary Tyler Moore because I know then I was curious to wonder what would a life without it be like? 
Did she ever get it? Did you that reality? Did she ever get a chance to know? Like, did she she know you're sober? Like, did you, did you tell her? No, she 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 died yeah. before any of this happened in my life, and we we lost touch with each other over the decades. But that's when I know the seed was planted about not drinking versus drinking. It's amazing when you look back on your life um, when you're sober and you're thinking clearly in sobriety, and you notice all this stuff makes sense now and and you don't notice it, it then mm-hmm. and it's so amazing true peace yes amazing when you so you're working with her and then when does the when did things kind of actually talk to me more about your career so you do the, the the video with mary tyler moore this is when these fitness videos are really getting a lot of attention and making a lot of money mm-hmm. what happens next yeah. oh man so we premiered on qvc the sh- the sure. home shopping channel and um when we premiered the videos on QBC, I was so blessed because there was a producer for this company in Utah who saw my um, performance on QBC and they contacted me and asked me if I would be interested to audition for an infomercial for this machine called the Cardio Glide. Um, and I was open and curious and they said, we're going to fly you to LA to audition for this. And I thought, okay, I got the gig. And the Cardio Glide was a huge machine at that moment. It was competing with the Health Rider. And the Health Rider was about a $500 price point. And they came out with the Cardio Glide at $200. And man, did I shine selling this thing. I loved selling it. I loved being on it. At this point, I'm getting too busy to keep the studio open. And the Super Gym is now opening. So these little boutique franchise studios were going away. And at the same time, my uh, QVC life took off. So the timing is right. The timing was awesome. And the company that hired me is Icon Health and Fitness out in Utah. And they put me on a contract. And I started selling so many cool pieces of equipment for fitness and well-being on QVC. And that was really the next chapter of my public profile getting much more public at the same time, I was really excited to write this book based on everything that I had learned in the studio years, the book being Feel Good Naked, the title. And the book sold to a big deal person in Dallas who wanted to get it published, and she took it on. And the book got published, and now people really wanted to work with me privately, and I did so much public speaking at that point. And that is what led to the next layer of being with individuals and helping them become more fully realized. The world looks different behind the handlebars of a rad electric bike. Grabbing takeout looks less like greasy styrofoam boxes and more like a cross-town adventure. Ride shares look less like piling into the back of a car and more like grabbing fresh air with your friends. And commuting can even start to look like the best part of your day. That's because with Rad, the world is what you make of it, not what it makes of you. See for yourself with a 14-day free trial. Find your fun at radpowerbikes.com. 
Start your countdown to the most delicious Sunday of the year at Whole Foods Market. The Easter in Bloom event is on. Experience it in stores from March 29th through April 11th with irresistible deals and delights store-wide. Save on feast-worthy animal welfare certified meats like spiral-cut ham and boneless ribeye. Then add a flash of green to the scene with savings on organic asparagus. Too busy to cook? Don't sleep on their crowd-favorite catering. Find all of that plus source for good floral bouquets and more at your local Whole Foods Market. And so you're, you, by the way, you can still get the book on Amazon uh, when, you, when you do research yeah, on it. like, <laughs> I think it's a dollar. Hey, it's, 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 you, can, you can tell it had a lot of success. It's the first thing that comes up about you and it's all over the place. Uh, oh, thank you. So how, how is the drinking at this point in time? I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of traveling. You're out doing a lot of speaking, more high octane. Mm-hmm. Where is, first of all, are drugs a part of your story? Um, no, it was the drinking that was really my, my deepest clutch that, you know, I, I, I would drink at night to get away from my brain that was the high producing type A worker. So I would, I was falling in love with my then husband and, you know, he and I would often just open a bottle of wine as if that was just what everybody did. And I really started to drink more and more and more once I moved out to the West Coast and he was on the West Coast with two small children. So there was not an option to live in New York where I was based. And so I moved out to Portland, Oregon and we were becoming, you know, nightly drinkers. And now I can see in the looking backwards, this was when the alcoholic lifestyle started to really happen, but I was not thinking it was an issue. Talk to me about that lifestyle. Bottle of wine every night, sometimes two bottles. And it was daily, every night, every night, every night, every night, every night, open the wine. Everything was about let's have champagne, let's have wine, let's have beer, let's go out for margaritas. It was the way we celebrated and played and took time together at the end of long work days, but it was daily. Was it affecting like how you, how you, your work? Yeah. Well, no, it never did. Thankfully, because I'm so, I felt so devoted to my work always, but what it was affecting was my hormones and my brain and my body. I, I would wake up. This would be like forties. I'm in my forties at this point, And I realized in the morning, you know, the girl that never had a hangover does not feel so great, <laughs> you know, and I would kind of not look at that. I didn't want to see that. I would deny it. Well, cause you know? you're, yeah, cause you're type A and, and you're driven and you're successful. It's very hard to admit this chink yeah. in your armor. You just gotta, yeah. you gotta, you gotta yeah. play through it. Yep. You know it well as a football player, you, you play through it. So we kept drinking and drinking, and he was a larger person than I am. I'm 5'5", you know, 135 pounds, and and he was a bigger man. So I kept up with him. You know, like I said, I could drink any man under the table. So I was drinking the kind of quantities he was drinking and not thinking anything of it until it really started to have a negative effect on me. How does the negative effect play out? What are some of the things that you remember or, or that were major issues? Depression, depression, anxiety, um, really reactive to most things in a bad way, um, high reactivity, anger, 
started noticing, like, I'm really pissed off a lot. Um, and I just, I was seeing that my emotions were going all towards that reactive emotional realm more often than not. And I would wake up and feel so dark and blue and shameful. This is when the shame began, was in those kind of mid to late 40s where I thought, what am I doing? I'm drinking so much every night and I don't feel good and I can't stop. Uh, Okay, I'll just go work out, you know, go work out. That's the, yeah, that's the remedy because it kind of clears you up and for me at least, it kind of, I I don't know, it took the monkey off my back. Thank you, yeah. A question I have for you, what or how hard is it for somebody that's so functional and successful to get sober? For, I think it's the hardest profile. I got because for me, I had no other choice. I asked the question because I have no clue what the answer is. I was I, I really bottomed out, and I'm curious as to as high functioning as you were, what was it like to get sober? Oh, so hard! Hardest thing I've ever done. Best thing I've ever done. But it was rough. I, I, I really, really struggled. I, I think I struggled in my mind every day for 10 years before I stopped. And I really didn't stop thinking I could stick with it. I stopped for 90 days. And I white-knuckled so deeply through those 90 days. And I stopped because at this point my marriage had ended. I was living alone. And I blacked out twice by myself in my apartment and I woke up next to my dining room table and just thought oh my god what has happened and at this point I'm in my 50s so you see you can't keep going like I was going as a female I can't speak for your gender but for females the hormones pre-menopause menopause and alcohol are a terrible mix awful poisonous Um, so my partner at the time challenged me to do 90 days without it. And I, it's a romantic partner or a work partner? It was a romantic partner. Um, and I went to an AA meeting. I sat in a chair and looked at the floor. I felt so punished. And I white-knuckled. And about the 89th day, I said to my partner, Oh, 90 days is tomorrow. So on my 91st day, I think we should go out to dinner and get a beautiful bottle of wine. And I'm sure I'll get such a big buzz from it because I haven't had it in 90 days. And they looked at me and said, I don't think you should go back. And I was so mad. And then I knew that's true. I really, I really shouldn't go back. I can't go back. I, 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 why would I go back? And then I started to really commit to this idea of, oh, wait, recovery is only one day at a time. And on the 91st day, I didn't have any alcohol, and I haven't looked back. So grateful beyond measure. That, that, that 90 days, were you going to meetings, or were you, you, you say white-knuckling, you, you kind of went to that first meeting, looked at the floor, and never went back, or did you, did you go back? <sighs> I struggled with the AA meetings in the beginning. I mean, I, I use them now, but I really found some other ways in the world now that spoke to me more deeply. Um, one was through Buddhism, because I study Buddhism, and 
the Dharma recovery really kind of worked for me more at that time and still does. And Holly Whitaker, who is a rock star now, she was one of the greatest gifts to me. And it was all online that I found her work. She's, um, she's known very well now because Chrissy Teigen quoted her as the reason she gave up drinking. Uh, and I just started following all of her literature, her blog, and she really made sense to me. So I would give Holly Whitaker a real shout out, along with AA and Dharma Recovery. I need, I need a lot of different parts of recovery to stay interested in it. And but, now it's one of the most fascinating worlds I've ever found. You're, you're a seeker. And, yeah. And, and that can be... <laughs> One of the healthiest things, so those are some of the healthiest people I know when you're seeking the right things. I want to go through that lineup a little bit. You mentioned Buddhism. As, a, as an alcoholic in recovery, what is the tenet of Buddhism that you found to be the most helpful? Well, Buddhism is built on the idea that everybody suffers. And there is a way out of your suffering. And if you can, it kind of goes back to what we were saying about shame. Like if you can stay with your suffering in a loving paradigm, then it will lessen and it will decrease. And one of the great gifts of Buddhism is when you're suffering to help another soul who is suffering also. So I love the idea of the Sangha, which is the community. Um, but the idea that everybody suffers really holds me in a very grounded way because so much of suffering can be hidden or shameful or guilt-ridden. And in Buddhism, it's like, no, everybody suffers. It's just how do you want to manage your suffering? And can you help another soul, which automatically helps the personal person's suffering, very much like recovery and AA. Help someone else instead of your own narcissistic suffering. So I love that about Buddhism, and I really am a great believer in meditating. And, of course, there's a huge component of meditating with Buddhism. And it just felt the most sensical to me of all religious studies. It just it's, it's the one that feels the most personally grounding and attuning. I feel, I feel deeply aligned with it. What do you the say Dharma to, recovery. Yeah, okay. Well, well, before we get to Dharma, what do you say to people who say, I, I can't? I can't meditate. I, you know, it's too much. My brain's too crazy. I would say go look at some of the apps that are out there that have been created from that same idea. Ten percent happier is one of my favorites because Dan, who Dan created Harris, that right? whole, yeah, Dan was the guy saying, "I'm not meditating. I don't meditate. That's not me." Um, so I, I think you've got support out there if you can't meditate. The other thing I want to recommend is uh, there's an incredible Zen teacher in San Francisco named Norman Fisher. Um, and he has an article, How to Create a Meditation Practice at Your Home, that moved me and I never looked back. I started that in 2010. So you've got resources out there. If you don't think you can meditate, Try it with guided meditation. You're not just sitting there contemplating your brain. There are so many ways to meditate, and I would say it is one of the great anchors in life. Yeah, it's how I, I've gotten so far away from it, but I used to do a four-minute guided every mo every morning, and I it's just a matter of starting and stopping. I, I have to I have to get back to it. Uh, on on to Dharma. What as as an alcoholic in recovery? What have you gotten from that that's helped you the most? 
I love my sangha. I have a recovery sangha. We meet the last two years with this crazy pandemic. We started to thankfully meet on Zoom. And what I love about this Dharma recovery work is you take a little meditation as a group, whether you're in person or virtually. And then there's usually a great reading that someone offers that we read. Um, and then when you share, it's just, it's, it's the most non-judgmental I've ever felt in a mm. recovery meeting. So Dharma recovery is just a little less, you know, sometimes people feel in AA like you're always being told that you're, you, you did it wrong. You have to do it this way. For sure. Only these. But in Dharma recovery, it's, it's more forgiving, I find, I think. And it's more about how the Buddha works the steps kind of idea than it is only these 12 steps even though Dharma recovery includes steps. But the steps are designed in a more Buddhist mindset, not so much the AA mindset. How I like you, both. It sounds pretty cool. How do you find it? Oh, online. Just You can do you know, Dharma recovery. And there's Zoom Google meetings and search. stuff? Oh, yeah. They're meeting all the time, everywhere. It's, it's, it's got such a large offering. And I recommend it to anyone who wants another way through that is not just AA, but maybe in addition to or, or instead of Dharma Recovery, which is D-H-A-R-M-A. Okay, so so Holly, what's her last name? Oh, Holly Whitaker. <laughs> so, yeah, what are some of the big, big things about her that have helped you? Oh, man. So her book is called How to Quit Like a Woman. And um, How to Quit she, Like a Woman. How to Quit Like a Woman is her book that Chrissy Teigen went public with, and now she's very well known. But she just took the bullshit out of it. You know, she took it to like, this is hard as hell. This is not something that you're going to like, but you got to, you know, here's why I did it. She just shows herself so nakedly in the face of addiction. And she doesn't make it sound neat and easy and like, oh, just do this and you can get off the sauce. Yeah. She's just, she's honest. And I love her honesty. And that's the way you get well. That's how you get well, right? And it's hard to find the that honesty. gear. I know. It is because I felt shame in some of these AA meetings because I thought, well, first of all, I can't quote the God thing too much because it's not registering is authentic for me and it just felt punishing in some ways now I can use AA really well I love it now because I I've loved it during the pandemic because I can go on zoom and get a meeting at any hour if I feel I need that support and I often do so I like all these different modalities I think they really do make sense and they're more interesting to me than just one what do you tell other women that talk to you about struggling with with drinking how, how do you how do you convey your journey to them uh in, in in a paragraph or a couple minutes well first of all i say right away i understand and i'm i'm with you on the path and i'm holding your hand right now and i know how painful this is and how scary it is to imagine a life without it but I can tell you what my experiences have been, if that's helpful. And I can recommend to you sources that might be curiously of interest to you. And I do a very soft 
hold of their hand, not a rigorous one. But mostly I provide a safe place for them to tell me about what happens when they drink and why they're terrified they might have a problem. And I'm a safe place to come and it's totally confidential and I don't judge and they know that. So it's been very powerful to help my clients, those that have admitted an issue with alcohol that they're afraid of. It's just been such a great add-on to my work with women particularly who have that fear and shame around it. And my goal is to make it more comfortable and user-friendly. So when I talk about alcohol in women, I think it's so interesting to just look at it, discuss it, and figure out why are you drinking? What is it that is so difficult to feel? And that is a doorway that will open so much information up to the other person. What is it so difficult to feel? And this is where these feelings and emotions are often not understood or given fluency as they should be. So that's how I help women at this time and men. I have a few male clients who have opened up to me about their alcohol use as well. But because I understand so deeply, it makes for a much more fruitful environment to help another with no judgment. No, and you, no judgment, I think, is the best way to break down walls with people. And, and I think for, for, for me, it was always easy because I really did go so far down the rabbit hole that how can I judge anybody? If I'm, if I'm operating from a logical space, uh, I'm, I'm a walking contradiction if I'm judging you. So I, for me, that's like been such a great way to connect with people. And you're such a great gift to others as well. Because that is so helpful to remember with all humans. Like, we are just trying to all do the best we can. And the next right thing is hard to do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's real hard. really hard. <laughs> you, so you defi would you define yourself as a life coach now? Yes. I, I am a coach, and I use the word coach, but life coach works, confidence coach works, wellness coach works. Um, yes. I am a coach, and I love my work. Well, and you work with successful people, I'm guessing, too. What is mm -hmm. one of the biggest myths that these successful people sit down in front of you, whether it's online or in person, what are they telling themselves that you see is so common that you think is and know is such bullshit, and you've got to help them work through it? If there's a, if there's a number one thing. Yeah, I think the number one thing would be that if I'm successful, I don't struggle but why do I struggle? And so it's teaching them that the struggle is real for all of us. And that takes us back in a way to the Buddhism. But most type A successful people feel really guilty, shameful, and horrified by their struggles. They, they don't want to have struggles because they're successful. But those two things are okay coexisting. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting because you think... And that's why you hear people talk about, oh, once I achieve this type of success, everything will be okay. And, you know, you hear the term inside job or whatever, but it really does start inside, whether it's going to be the positive or negative. This is not my opinion. This is what I've experienced. For me, yeah. I've always got to be vigilant on what I'm doing as far as my mental health and my spiritual health is concerned. Otherwise, it, has, it doesn't matter what happens to you outside of, of your, your aura, you know, or what's going on 
with you inside your head. It doesn't matter. You can be experiencing all the success in the world. If you're not spiritually fit, then it's doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And, and you know, you mentioned something that I've never thought of before. It just makes things more shameful because you're like, man, I shouldn't feel like this anymore. I do. And it gets worse. Exactly. Exactly. And on the exterior that you speak of, if success is part of your life, then it becomes even more intimidating and horrifying and frightening to look on the inside and see the struggle, or as I mentioned, the depression, or the anxiety, or what will my neighbor think? And that's where it all just gets buried in more of the exterior, which makes the interior suffer, suffer, suffer even deeper. And you've been sober four years. How have you? Well, yes. How have how have your relationships been? Romantic relationships without alcohol, because I can relate to the fact you said that was a big part of of a key relationship in your life. You just drink. That was what you did. It was like a, it was like the your favorite hobby. How did you move out of that and then embark on on, on other relationships or existing ones? The existing one yet? Oh, good question. A lot of my relationships went away when I quit drinking because socially that was what those relationships were, were drinking relationships. So I lost a lot of relationships when I stopped, but I gained so many powerful new relationships that have mutuality included in them and a great feeling of being seen and heard and loved. And my primary partner is not a drinker, which was unbelievably lucky. Yeah. And then I would say, sexually speaking, I can't believe how great sex is. <laughs> because when, when I was drinking, I honestly don't know if I felt a lot of sexual experiences because my body would be numb from the ethanol, the alcohol. Yeah, and it's the, big, so and I, it's the I, biggest I, lie. I, I, I don't know what I thought about my sex life before I got sober, but I know now it's healthy and it's, and it's, and it's good. I... I, I wasn't even there. I, I don't know about, you know, right. how I t- treated a partner or whatever. I just was like, I don't even, it was all egotistical for me as a guy. It was like, hey, you know, look, look, I did this and I would tell myself it was good or something it wasn't. It's, you know, but that, that yeah. was a huge fear of mine. Sex without alcohol was, I mean, yeah. shit, it kept me drunk for a while. Relationships without alcohol. Uh, yes. Same, same. In fact, the, the one of the first books that really moved me into a new way of thinking is called Living Sober. And there's a whole chapter about sex without it because that is really overwhelming at first. But when you think about how much alcohol numbs you out, sex and pleasure are about feeling those sensitive places in your body. So I didn't realize that I finally could experience sex for maybe the first time and enjoy the sensations that it's meant to create and provide, you know, because numbness wasn't there. But when you first start down that road without the alcohol, it's a big adjustment. <laughs> it is. I was just thinking, that. yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I thought to myself when I first started, you know, to get physical romantically after I got sober, I was like, am I always going to be like in my head? Like when I'm with a partner intimately, like for the rest yeah. of my, and finally like all the other shit you do, when you're not drinking, you stop thinking about it so much, right? I mean, you just uh, like, it's all about reps and you're just like, okay, now I'm, now I'm actually here. I'm present in, in, in the moment. And I did think early on, 
you know, um, sexually after, you know, when I was sober, I was like, I guess this is how it is. I'm just always going to be overthinking stuff. And that's not how, <laughs> it's just not how it works. And there is that period where it's like, oh, I can't do this. This yeah. is just too, too hard. And then I, I became so aware that, wait, I get to do this and feel it. And I get to do this because I want to do this. And, and all of those things just really go hand in hand with zero alcohol because you feel. You feel your body. You feel your pleasure. And you also can feel when you don't want to be sexual. And I think as a female who drank so much, you know, it was never an option to say no. And now it's so wonderful to say no. You have the power of, of, of choice. Yes. Yeah, which, exactly. I, which I didn't really have before. At least, you know, I didn't feel like I did. Exactly. You and I share that so much because I think the sexual world that opens up when you stop drinking is the most exciting experience I've ever known sexually. And I never knew that those two things were so linked. Uh, yet, obviously they are, and it would make sense that they are. But my body never realized, wait, if I don't drink, it's, it's going to make me even more appreciative of sexual pleasure. What, what, what do you, do you think about writing another book? I do, Pete. I hope to. I really hope to. I just can't think about it or I'll get too anxious. And it'll <laughs> come through me. Just like my first one came through. It came through me just so clearly. This, this, this next book, if I do write it, will also just, I trust it'll come through. What was it like to write, a, write that first book? It was hard. Yeah. It was beautiful challenges, though, to write. Because I was an English major at Chapel Hill. And, um, and then I sold my book. And I then had to write it. So I was just so proud that I did that and that I pulled that off and then got great publicity for it through Oprah's magazine. And it's just, it's one of those proud things. You know, I feel really proud of it. Yeah. And even, even still today, it still resonates with people. I, I read the, the prologue or the summary and it's basically like, how, how do you become that person that basically walks with confidence? That that has that inner that that inner confidence. What what do you? I'm jumping around here, but what? How freeing was it when you got sober? Because you're talking about all this authentic stuff, and and I said earlier you're you're up uplifting to people, but then you're 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 drinking and you have that shame. How freeing was it to sit in front of your first client, and and be sober and be sharing these real authentic emotions about getting well? You know, I think that the, the answer that really comes through is that not drinking was the greatest gift to give myself. And once I could really understand that and feel that, everything I did from work to pleasure enhanced my authenticity in it because I was in a better relationship with myself. So anytime you enhance the relationship with yourself, it will benefit everything you do. And so my work has always been the strongest thing that I give to the world. But when I feel better in my skin, my work is even more precious and it is even more sacred. 
And so no matter what I did after I stopped drinking, I felt so much better about myself. And that was, that was the game changer. And you're more helpful to other people, even though you operated at a very high level before, clearly, from what we've discussed today. You still, you know, you operated at an even higher level and you're able to help people. I talked to somebody today. I was like, wow, you were so, then this person is like living in the sunlight of the spirit right now. I said, you know, when you're living like this, you're able to help me more. It was a buddy of mine. I'm like, it's pretty, it's, it's the sunlight of the spirit goes through you and you can shine it on other people. Ah. Uh. There is no doubt that that is the greatest service in not drinking is to be there for others. And we all hold each other's hands. And as a selfish alcoholic. We walk the path. Yeah, and as a selfish alcoholic, I just, I do a lot of the recovery shit because it feels, it makes me feel good. Uh, Exactly. And then I'm able to share it with other people uh, and, and hopefully make a difference. A couple more things before I let you go. What do you tell people? That, that are just trying to stop drinking today? That they're brave to let me know that. I think that's so brave to just admit that. And that by admitting it to only one person, you're on your way to exploring curiosity around giving it up. So I love the word sober curious. I saw you on a what, what what TV affiliate is that in Portland? AM Northwest is the KATU TV show that I do every month. Yeah, yeah, I've seen you. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. you do, and you talk Thank about you. everything. You talk about sober curious. You talked about you know uh, seven questions to ask yourself before you get a divorce. Was almost like I'm not married, uh, but I was like, woo, this is this is real stuff. It's scary. It was yeah. good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I was very proud of that segment. Um, because the pandemic has just really done a number on a lot of marriages. But um, the the idea when someone admits it is, and, and I learned this in one of my AA meetings, that all you have to do is tell one person out loud that you're struggling. That's it. And you're already on your way. All right. So where can people find you that are looking, that, that are looking for you? Cause this is, this is really good. I love talking to you. The, the, my, uh, Website is lauraredmond.com and it's L A U R E R E D M O N D.com. Okay, and we'll link it to the to this podcast. Anything else? I'm also on Instagram. Oh, I love Instagram. That's one of my favorite places. And that's Feel Good Naked Radio. Okay. At Feel Good Naked Radio. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anything (laughs) else? This has been great. I got to let you get back to your life. Anything else right now you want to share with people? I just want to thank you for talking so honestly about something that is so prevalent in our culture. And I know one thing, and that is that we are meant to connect. And the most connecting aspect of life is one that does not include alcohol. Wow, you said it all. That's it, right? That's a great way to put a bow on it. I need you to do me one favor. Just text me a headshot of yours that I can use with this. Uh, and then okay, Pete. It'll be up tomorrow. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you so much Thank for you. caring to talk. Oh. I loved our time together. Are you kidding me? I've, I got a lot out of it and I, I have a real good feeling other people will too. I will, I'll, I'll get you a link to the podcast once it gets up tomorrow, but Laura Redman, I cannot thank you enough. Oh, Pete Sousa, thank you. Have a beautiful rest of your day. You got it. You too. 
Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 